Today's episode of Weed Week is brought to you by Jars. Jars makes high-performance glass lines containers to store, transport, and enjoy cannabis flowers wherever your adventures take you. To learn more about how Jars lovingly designed containers will help you elevate your adventures, visit Jars.com. That's J-Y-A-R-Z.com, and the Y is silent. Hi, welcome to Weed Week. I'm your host, Alex Halperin. Today, we've got a great interview with Adam Eidinger, the Washington, D.C. activist who led the push to legalize recreational in the district. He's a really interesting guy who's lots of thoughts on the meaning of activism, even when it doesn't succeed. And for someone like me, who's distressed by much of what the Trump administration does, I found it really powerful. So stick around for that. Also, Thanks to those of you who have applied to co-host the show. I haven't gotten back to anyone yet, but will at some point in the not-too-distant future. And if you haven't applied yet, you should email me at alexhalperin at gmail.com. And you can subscribe to our newsletters, Weed Week and Weed Week Canada, at weedweek.net. All right, so quickly, a couple news stories I wanted to bring up. It looks like the U.S. has started to ban Canadians for life if they work in the cannabis industry. The U.S. already reserves the right to ban anyone for life who has ever tried cannabis, and this now seems to be opening on another front. So far, it only seems to have happened in a handful of cases, including Jay Evans, a CEO of an agricultural machine company who was traveling to the U.S. to discuss designing a machine which could be used in the cannabis industry. The U.S. State Department has said that its policies are not going to change based on Canadian legalization. And, well, this could become a major problem with with legalization. And there's there's no apparent end to the standoff. And so far, it appears to be relatively limited. And another quick story is that Mashable has a quick piece that Uber drivers can narc on passengers for weed. If it happens to you once, it'll probably lead to a warning but more can can lead to an account review. So be careful out there if you use Uber and, and like to consume cannabis before or after or perhaps during. Our sponsor, Jars, says they make the world's best cannabis containers, but you don't have to take their word for it. Frenchie Canoli, a consultant, educator, and hashish shin, says storing my resin has been a lifelong search for the perfect product. Then he found Jars. A glass protected by a plastic shell Shockproof, smell-proof, classy, and colorful. It was love at first sight. Fall in love today at jars.com. That's J-Y-A-R-Z.com. The Y is silent. And you can check out their new and very popular pale pink for summer. Our guest today is Adam Eidinger. He's the founder of DCMJ, the cannabis activist group in Washington, D.C., and he works for the socially conscious soap company, Dr. Bronner's. And we have a really interesting interview, so let's get to it. Hey, Adam, how's it going? It's going pretty good. First of all, can you, can you tell us a bit about yourself? I'm Adam Eidinger, and uh, I was the proposer of Initiative 71 that legalized marijuana in the nation's capital. This was done through a voter initiative in 2014. Currently, I am the social action director for Dr. Bronner's Magic Soaps. We are the top-selling organic soap company that's been fighting for 
fair trade, hemp, basically all plant medicines to become legal. So I, I want to ask you about your career as a legalization activist. And can, can you, when did you start advocating for, for marijuana legalization? And I guess in D.C.? I think right after I started, right after I started using marijuana, I realized that the the drug war was wrong about marijuana. That there was everything we were told about the dangers was exaggerated or not even true. And uh, that, so that was in college, and I guess I was 21 when I became a kind of a regular user, and I became more of a cannabis activist. I guess in 1998, I was assisting with the uh, media outreach to radio stations for 59, which legalized medical uh, marijuana in Washington, D.C., legalized home cultivation even. But that initiative was not implemented for 12 years due to congressional interference. And that kind of pushed me into statehood activism for D.C. and pushed me into working on anti-globalization and anti-war. And I've been an activist on a lot of different fronts, but I always had a strong opinion about the drug war, that it was wrong, that it was not based on science, where it was young people being locked up for small amounts of controlled substances. Uh, it wasn't until I was charged with a marijuana-related crime, and that was the raiding of Capitol Hemp in 2011. This was a main police raid. Both stores, all of our employees were arrested. Ultimately, I had a warrant for my arrest. And we were charged with sale of drug paraphernalia, uh, referring to bongs and vaporizers. Mm. And, um, you know, that, that, case, that case ended up being resolved in, in, in an agreement to close our stores down, and all of our property was returned. And it was at that time that uh, I took the non-drug paraphernalia property, the clothing and things, and started to sell it online. My partner moved to Maryland, and he started a new store. But... Ultimately, I said to my partner at the time, I was like, you know, my main focus now is going to be changing the law because I don't want to go through this again. So um, it was at that, that time that DCMJ was formed, and, 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 and I had the idea of, like, you know, the courthouse is the nexus of the drug war. You've got the victims of the drug war, the, the, the drug users. You've got the police there. You've got the court officials. Everybody's there. You've got voters there because they're the jurors. You know, so why don't we just do all of our organizing in front of the courthouse? It was spring of 2013 that we began holding a sign in front of the courthouse that said, treat marijuana like al alcohol, ask me how. And in just three months, we were able to collect the emails addresses of about, about 4,000 people that said they would help us, that they would help change the law. So it was, it was really exciting to see the, how fast a response we got from organizing. And by the summertime, we had published uh, the actual law that we wanted to write. We went on the ballot, I should say. And, and we, we let people give comment on that. For three months, we received comments from the general public. And we published this initiative, submitted to the Board of Elections, and that started a whole process that ultimately, you know, we had to fight for the language to be approved and then once we got it approved, we had to collect uh, almost uh, 57,000 signatures to get it on the ballot. Had to find all the, we had only nine weeks to collect those signatures. 
normally you have six months, but we were very much under the gun and no one thought it was possible to collect signatures that fast. We, we felt like we could at first and even after three weeks we realized we were failing and we weren't getting signatures in time. And, and when the word went out that we were failing and that this needed help and it, it wasn't that easy to collect these signatures on such a short notice, and my phone just wouldn't stop ringing at that point from people who wanted to help that were like, we're not going to let this fail. <laughs> uh, whatever you need, I'll help you. You know, it was that kind of thing. It was like, sometimes you have to admit that you're failing to get the help you need. So we got the help from the community. So it's what, it's what a ballot issue is supposed to be, you know, from the people. You know, we were polling in the high 60s, and we still had no national groups supporting us. It was only late in the game that Drug Policy Alliance came in. And frankly, they helped propel us to 71%. I'll never forget Ethan Nadelman saying to us, you know, um, this, has to, this can't just pass. It has to pass by a huge margin or the D.C. government will overturn it. And, and he, he was probably right because you can see right now they're about to overturn or trying to overturn a ballot initiative that passed by 56% to raise the minimum wage, and politicians are saying, oh, that's not enough of a majority, <laughs> even though the same election elected them to office. Of, of course, the, the initiative passed, and, and D.C. legalized recreational in 2014, but there's not, there's not an, an industry there. Can you sort of remind, sort of explain what the, the legalization situation is like in D.C. right now? Well, we have legalization without commercialization. And if the listeners can imagine that, it's, it means you can cultivate it in your home, but only six plants that are mature per household. You can possess everything that you grow, but when you walk out of your house, you can only have two ounces on you maximum. You can give a friend who's 21 and older an ounce, and that's not illegal. It's not distribution. Um, if you manage to get a hold of some medical cannabis, because we have five dispensaries in the city and I think uh, seven cultivation centers and you decide to share that cannabis with somebody who is 21 and older, you're not breaking any laws. Basically, we legalized adult use and we did not legalize sale to adults. And is that largely because Congress has enough power to sort of prevent that? Congress is preventing D.C. from passing any new marijuana reform whatsoever. They have a budget rider that prevents the D.C. government from spending money to enact new laws. So that's how they're strangleholding the city right now from actually setting up stores, which would be very popular. And with the tourism that comes to the city and makes the city wealthy, you would probably see the tourism on steroids. The mayor uh, went on television shortly after Initiative 71 passed, and Mayor Bowser said, that uh, she does not want Washington, D.C. to turn into Amsterdam. So now we have a huge underground economy here. We always had it, but it wasn't so blatantly open. There are these pop-ups that happen, and these, they, they happen in homes, they happen in backyards, they happen in public parks, they happen in actual businesses, restaurants, and bars. I've seen them pretty much everywhere at this point. And uh, you aspire beware, you're, you're, you're in the underground economy. There, there, it's a quid pro quo when you say, I will give you cannabis if you buy X, Y, Z. 
You know, so you can't buy something else. Like I bought this handmade work of art <laughs> and then say, you know, I spent $300 on this, on this hand pressed juice product. <laughs> you know, it's a quart of juice for $300. <laughs> and meanwhile, you're getting like an ounce of weed as well as a gift from the juice presser. You know, it's just, it's not plausible. And as long as there's cash being exchanged, and marijuana is like in the room, they are getting convictions, they are getting, they are arresting people, they're sending in, I say they, I mean the police, they're sending in vice squad who don't look like your normal vice squad that are very cannabis sophisticated people. I think the people that get into this pop-up business, it's like whack-a-mole and you don't want to get whacked. (laughs) And so I tell people to stay away from it, it's not legal. What is legal is, is you could be a cultivator. You can go and sell your service of going into people's homes and growing their weed for them. And this is, a, this is a business that's happening across the city right now. There are reputable businesses that are, that are licensed in the city to be normal businesses that provide landscaping services that specialize in home cultivation. Can you tell me a little bit about Your your group has become known since legalization in D.C. for giving away cannabis, I think, on the steps of Congress and at the Department of Housing and Urban Development. Yes. How has that gone? Well, since gifting of cannabis is lawful, and we we made it lawful, we've incorporated uh, free cannabis into important demonstrations. Probably the most memorable was the Trump 420, where... For about six weeks prior to the demonstration, the community met daily to roll joints and stash joints until we had uh, roughly 10,000 joints in the end that were given away on the day of, of 6,000 of which were rolled in my house. (laughs) People might just come initially for the free weed, but then they end up staying for the politics and realizing that we are like one of the most vibrant political social change movements in America if we just be ourselves. So it's legal to give away cannabis in D.C., right? So we thought, well, why don't we give it away on Capitol Hill? On 420, no less, on the, on the cannabis holiday. And we announced was that public- this year or last year? This was last year. Okay. And uh, we brought 1,200 joints. Actually, 1,240, I think was the number, because we it was after H.R. 1240. It was for a descheduling law. Like, we brought the same number of joints. And we said, just for a couple hours, if you have a congressional ID, any kind of congressional ID, you could be landscaping or you could be, you know, in Senator Schumer's office. It doesn't matter. If you have a congressional ID to work on Capitol Hill, you can come and receive two joints for free on Capitol Hill. So we did this across the street from the Capitol building on a D.C. sidewalk where it's legal. And they still arrested us. And, and it ended up being seen by like a billion people on television and on the internet because it was it was it was powerful. And every time they would arrest one person, another person would start giving away joints, and then they'd arrest that person. And this went on for about two and a half hours of just one arrest every few minutes, until I think in the end there were ten of us arrested. You know, we're 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 pushing the envelope there, but we, then we came back the following Monday. And we had a previously scheduled smoke-in on, at the Capitol that was themed, really a religious-themed smoke-in, where we had Christian, Jewish, 
Buddhist and um, Rastafarian believers and a non-believer group, people who don't believe but believe it's a spiritual thing for them, but they don't believe in a particular religion, like eight agnostics, all spoke, and then we all used in this like religious ceremony, and the police let it all happen, and then at the end of it, they arrested us. <laughs> <laughs> so the uh, way I see it is like it's, we have to be public with our resistance and with our desires, and especially in halls of power, and this approach of being nice and just waiting and waiting and waiting, it hasn't really worked. What really works is, is ballot initiatives where we cut the middlemen out entirely. We just take the politicians out of it and say, we're going to let the people decide. And direct action, where we actually say, no, we're proud of who we are. You're going to have to arrest all of us. Well, I'm tired of lobbyists that do cocaine or other hard drugs tell me that I don't have the right image for legalization of marijuana. So what we're trying to do is identify politicians willing to use marijuana publicly. And we have. David Grasso... Jack Evans, Brown and Doe. These are all D.C. council members. They have become public marijuana users thanks to DCMJ, thanks to our encouragement. That you can't, how, how, why do we want people writing these laws who've never tried marijuana? I wanted to ask you about your current work against Congressman Andy Harris. So first of all, Andy Harris, he's, a, he's the only Republican in Maryland's congressional delegation, and he's a doctor. He's very anti-marijuana, but also pro-medical marijuana. It, I, I haven't, I don't know his position that closely. He has, he, he for sure has a nuanced position. And I think he comes squarely down, though, on the prohibitionist side. Uh, he's one of these doctors that will say there's not enough medical evidence to legalize. That it's, it's marijuana is dangerous still, even, even with all the medical benefits, it's still dangerous. And he won't be able to point to a single fatality. Andy Harris is a far-right Republican. He votes with Trump 87% of the time. Mm. He has resisted marijuana reform consistently, but when he's getting pressure from constituents or pressure from veterans, who he's, he is a former Navy doctor, uh, he responds with, things like moving a piece of legislation out of committees that he's in. And he recently did that for this, the Veteran Access Bill, which would give veterans the right to talk to their VA doctors about using cannabis, which they currently can't do. So he has been helpful with that, and he also sponsored a bill with Eleanor Holmes Norton when we first started to decry his rider against D.C. that blocks any marijuana reform from passing he then ran to Norton and said, I want to sponsor a research bill with you. And she, she did it, and I, I, I kind of gave her a hard time later, and I said, you know, he's just using you because he has to point to something that shows that he's reasonable on marijuana when, in fact, he's not, and he is firmly a prohibitionist. And Eleanor Holmes Norton is the D.C. representative in Congress who doesn't vote. She's our non-voting uh, delegate, and we call her our congresswoman, but she's officially a delegate. And she's a hero of ours. She has been very good to defending this issue and sponsoring legislation. So um, she recently introduced a bill that is historic, really, in nature, because it's never been done before. It would create parity for people living in public housing in states that have legalized or have medical. And I think what people need to, need to come to understand is that people living in public housing 
are often unable to make a living anyway, in any way. Like they are sick, they could have chronic diseases, and a lot of these folks are finding cannabis is beneficial to them. And they're being told, you can't use cannabis in your public housing, here are some opioids instead. And then we met people like Sandra Battle, who Norton, Eleanor Holmes Norton introduced the legislation in her name. Sandra Battle has fibromyalgia. She's a grandmother. She's raising her, uh, raised her daughter, and she has her, a grandson living with her. She's in a mold-infested building that they can't get the landlord to fix, that tax dollars are being wasted paying that landlord. And in the case of Sandra Battle, she had a medical card from the D.C. government to buy cannabis. But she can't buy it and then bring it to her house. And uh, she stands up for herself and starts speaking out. So earlier this year, um, you know, just in a routine meeting with Eleanor Holmes Norton's staff, their staff said, you know, what, we could do a bill just like that, you know. <laughs> like, we hadn't even asked for a bill. We were just describing the problem. You know, we wanted to pressure on, on you know, Secretary of HUD or something. We weren't expecting her to go and actually craft the bill. And now it's basically parity. It's like whatever it is in your state. You live in California, you live in Colorado, you live in D.C., you can grow in your public housing. And how many spawns has it attracted much support from Democrats at least? So to be fair, we're going to announce co-sponsors in the fall. And unless the Republicans get religion on marijuana, I don't expect them to allow a vote on it, period. No, probably not. So so our eyes are set on possibly a Democratic Congress in the next year getting reintroduced and then seeing this thing get passed. Before we wrap up, can you tell us how the campaign against Andy Harris is going? Well, the campaign against Andy Harris is a tough one. Uh, I would say that we're definitely getting... And you've moved to his district? Yes. I moved to... Well, just to be clear, I'm renting a house in his district that I've now made my voting residence. I don't vote in Washington, D.C. anymore. So I voted voted in the primary out there against Andy Harris for Allison Galbraith. Unfortunately, she came in second place in a six-way Democratic primary. Uh, The winner, uh, Jesse Colvin, is pro-medical marijuana and pro-D.C. statehood. Uh, I'll be voting for him. Uh, But uh, whether marijuana reformers can get behind him and really raise money and really see him as a viable uh, ally, I I don't see anything on his website about it. I I haven't heard him give a single policy position in a tweet or anything saying, you know, I'm on the record, I support XYZ. What's your read more widely about legal marijuana is much more popular than either political party or a fair number of politicians are reluctant to talk about it. Do you have any guidance for these? The guidance is to keep talking to them and to get involved in their campaigns. Uh, We had a really good interaction with Ben Jealous, who won the governor nomination for the Democratic Party in Maryland. And that's like the high note of our work in Maryland right now, is that Ben Jealous supports home cultivation now. And he didn't think much of it when we first spoke with him. He thought it was the last thing you do. And I said, uh, said to Ben that it's the first thing you do. And I, and I said, look, why are you so anxious to set up the sales when we, sh- we could start with home cultivation and, that, and, and end all the arrests and let people produce it for themselves? And he just fell in love with the idea and added it to his talking points. And now when he gives speeches about marijuana, he mentions home cultivation. 
Um, the last thing I want to say about Harris, Andy Harris, is that beating him in this district is going to require convincing a lot of Republicans that it's time for Harris to go. And putting a Democrat in there is it's just really unlikely. You know, it's a 63% majority Republican congressional district. It's gerrymandered. So my move to, to his district really was a six-year plan because I'm looking at the election in 2022 after the census, after the redistricting plan that will come in for Maryland. That district will be competitive. And in this year, we're likely to lose it. But you've got to start somewhere. And, uh, and so by moving there and like organizing there, we knocked on over 5,000 doors in Salisbury and surrounding counties. Just our little team uh, of three full-time volunteer activists and then another team of about 20 part-time activists, 5,000 doors. We talked to people. We came in second place. We won Salisbury for our candidate, um, but we came in second place in the, in the race. It was, it was powerful, and Allison Galbraith had never run for office before. That we, we were able to spread the marijuana message. When we knocked on people's doors and we said we're here for this campaign, there was less interest into the candidate and more interest that we were marijuana reformers. Because we could tell them, we're from, actually from D.C. We moved here because your congressman is hurting us in D.C., and, and we're, we're the ones, who, we're the people who legalized. And as soon as they would hear that, we were getting people to register to vote that didn't vote. Uh, we registered about 100 new voters from our campaign. It doesn't sound like a lot, but in a small town like Salisbury, it actually was, it actually is a lot. This is really terrific and really interesting. And I think inspiring just about what activism is about in times where, well, it's, it's, it's you know, the politics are awful. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat. This was really fun and interesting. All right. Thanks for having me. Take care. All right. That's it for this week's episode. You can find Adam on Twitter at DCMJ2014. For all your burning weed questions, you can leave us a voicemail at our new phone number, 424-258-0430. Leave us a question or comment, and we could play it on the air or at least try and answer your question. All right. Thanks again for tuning in. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at weedweeknews.com. And if you haven't yet, go to iTunes and rate us five stars. It really helps new listeners find us. And we're still a pretty new show. Our producer is Hannah Smith and Alicia Beyer wrote our theme music. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.